huye. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. The Pelicans get a win. Overtime was needed. And the Memphis Grizzlies did not have their best player and one of the top 10 best players in the association. But you know what? It doesn't matter. A win is a win as the Pels keep their hopes alive of staying in round that 7-8 spot for the play-in tournament now with only two games to go. Good morning. Welcome to RP3 and Company. I'm your big, bald, and beautiful host, Raymond Parch III, better known as RP3. Of course, joining me here in the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette is the producer extraordinaire, Dawson Iserlow. we got a great show lined up for you today. Our final show of the week. We're off tomorrow for Good Friday. Obviously, the Easter holiday is upon us. We'll have James Yasko on to talk about those Houston Astros. They got a win yesterday. Jeff Willis, LSUE baseball coach, will be joining us. His team is off to what I would uh, consider a slightly good start to the season. That's sarcasm. They're off to a great start. Les East from CrescentCitySports.com will join us to talk Saints and Pelicans. And John Tacant, author of a great golf book called Little Poison, is joining us as well. We'll also give you the latest updates from the Masters as soon as they start hitting the course for the first round action there. We'll actually be giving our preview. Who do we like for golf's first major of the season? That'll be coming up this hour as well. So plenty to get to. Plenty for you to tune in for. Of course, we'd love to hear from you. Game hotline is always open. 337-706-0111. That's 337-706-0111. And we're going to start off with those Pelicans. 138-131 to win over the Memphis Grizzlies last night. Needed to win in overtime. Rallied there in the fourth to force overtime. And... Got the job done, outscoring the Grizz 14-7 in the extra period. Things looked dire after the second quarter. Oh, you're like, oh, not good. What, what happened? But they responded. And they responded in a big way in the third, and then they just battled it out. Once again, Memphis... No John Morant. He was a scratch. They had some other guys miss time. Jackson went off, though, scored 40 points, and they had two other players score at least 24 points in the game. The Pelicans, Brandon Ingram, had a good game, 24 points, but Herb Jones had a career night. Herb Jones, the defensive specialist for the New Orleans Pelicans, 
dropped 35 points. He scored 35 points. How phenomenal is that? 35! That's amazing. They also got 31 from C.J. McCollum, who had himself an excellent game, one of his best games of the season. And they also got 30 points from Trey Murphy the third. Jones, McCollum, and Murphy become the first trio in Pelicans franchise history to score 30-plus points apiece in the same game. It never happened before. Not with Chris Paul and David West and Peja back in the day. Not with Anthony Davis and Drew Holiday. It never happened. And who would have thought that the three would have been Herb Jones, C.J. McCollum, and Trey Murphy? Maybe Trey Murphy and McCollum? Maybe? But Herb Jones, what a difference maker. And they only played four bench players in this game. Get the win. And the most important part about that, because as we talked about on yesterday's show, they had an opportunity to get a win against a quality playoff opponent, a top four seed against Sacramento, and they didn't get the job done. And they got bullied and did not get the job done. Memphis comes in. They're the two seed. You're in danger of losing to Memphis without their best player. But you find a way. And that's what you got to do. It it doesn't have to look good. It doesn't have to be pretty. Right? We're to the point of the season now where it's just simply win the ball game. That's all it is. And the playoff picture now takes shape. Because the Pels are firmly there in eight. They're tied with the Lakers who lost last night to the Clippers. Clippers are now, I believe, are going to be the five seed. There may be some flip-flopping between them and Golden State. But Nuggets, Grizzly Kings, and now the Phoenix Suns have all clinched spots in the Western Conference playoffs. Clippers, Warriors will figure out who's going to be the five or the six in the last couple of games here. And Lakers and Pelicans and the Timberwolves are going to battle it out in these last two games to figure out who's 7, 8, and 9. Oklahoma City Thunder and Dallas, who won last night, they're going to figure out who's going to be the 10 seed. The Mavericks aren't out of it just yet. Technically, neither is Utah, but really Utah is. So Oklahoma City, Dallas are going to fight to be who's going to be the 10. But with two games to go, the Pels are still in a position here to be the 7, which means they would host that play-in game versus the 8. And remember, the winner of that game automatically moves on to be the 7 seed for the Western Conference playoffs, which means that if the Pels can secure the 7 and then win that game, they would play more than likely Memphis. That's how that's going to work. So Lakers, Pelicans. Looks like they're on a collision course for the 7-8, but Minnesota's probably going to have something to say about that. 
that makes that finale in Minnesota that much more important. Because right now, Lakers-Pelicans are tied in the standings and the Timberwolves are a full game behind them. I'm not for sure how the tiebreakers go, how the records between the Pelicans versus the Lakers and the Timberwolves are. So maybe that game in Minnesota, maybe it matters or doesn't matter as much as we think it's going to. But the producer extraordinaire is finding out. Because that's what he does. That's what he does. He wakes up in the morning and goes, playoff scenarios, I eat that for breakfast. Yeah, so the Minnesota game between the Pels and the Timberwolves is going to decide the tiebreaker in that series, so that's another reason you basically kind of have to win it. Now, if Minnesota loses before then and the Pels win, then that won't matter as much. The Pelicans... Let me try that again. The Pelicans... Do not have the tiebreaker with the Lakers. That's been the whole thing the whole time. The reason the the Lakers winning last night actually would have been better because the Pelicans had the tiebreaker with basically everyone in the West except the Lakers. Uh, Including, you're saying, if the Clippers would have lost, you would have had the tiebreaker against the Clippers. They had the tiebreaker against the Clippers. I think they even had it against the Warriors because of the secondary tiebreaker stuff. Um, but the Lakers were the team that they didn't. So now, yeah, it's it's looking like number eight for me. And, And Minnesota maybe can make push them down to nine, which... Again, that game's going to be enormous. I mean, it's going to determine if you have to play an extra game or not. And if you're in the nine spot, I don't see this team winning two games in a row in the playing tournament. But if you only have to win one of the two, then I like their chances. So, um, and what's and what's dangerous about being the nine as well is they're clearly a better team than the Oklahoma City Thunder are, right? And they're a better team, you could argue, than the Dallas Mavericks. But they don't have anyone as good as Luka. And as bad as the Mavericks have played, and they have been atrocious since the Kyrie Irving trade, in a one-game scenario, Luka could go off like he does all the time, right? So that's the one where you go, yeah, I'd like their chances. Look, even if it's a 9-10 matchup between the Pelicans and the Timberwolves, I like their chances. I like their chances against Oklahoma City in that in that uh, regard as well. Or if, but Dallas is the one because they have a one of those transition, you know, one of those transcendent generational talents. And in a one game scenario, that'd be like, yeah, yeah, I would feel more confident the Pelicans playing against the Mavericks in a series because I think they would win that series and win it pretty easily. But one game, once again, I don't even know if the Mavs are going to make it because well, they've been a dumpster fire. It looks like they, to me, I think Dallas is going to make it. Um, How do the schedules break down for the remaining? So that's the thing. Now, the the, the Mavericks are going to win there. The Mavericks are going to play the Bulls and the Spurs. Oh, my goodness. Oklahoma City plays the Jazz and the Grizzlies. Now, again, the Grizzlies are probably going to be resting. We'll see because they still have to. You know, that two spot isn't. isn't they have exactly a, t- solved, but but they but, have a two game full two game lead on Sacramento. Right, but you know, it's just last night you really needed more so than I even thought going in. I didn't even look at it as far as I did. You really needed the Clippers to lose that game, and ironically, you had to root for the Lakers, but. 
the Clippers kind of handled the Lakers. So that really kind of messed with your with your tiebreaker abilities and your chances to jump and at least sit in the seven eight spot, uh, or rather get to number seven. That really messed with your chances because now it's not exactly in your hands. And the Lakers probably aren't going to lose either of the two games that. They have remaining because Phoenix is clinched and they're going to rest. Yes, and then it's Utah again, who the Lakers did struggle with, you know, a couple of days ago. But that was uh, before Utah was kind of fully out of things, technically. Um, it's just tough. It's a weird spot, and and you, again, you're in the situation now. We have a lot of teams that are playing games that don't matter, and with Phoenix kind of clinching last night, that they're they're one of the the. The latest ones. Now, that being said, you know, we've talked about Friday's game, Good Friday game against the Knicks, right? Well, they're firmly entrenched as the five. There's no way Brooklyn's going to catch them because they have a three-game cushion on Brooklyn and they're three games behind Cleveland. So the Knicks are firmly in the five hole in in the Eastern Conference. That doesn't change. Yeah. So what are they playing for? Right. The the Pelicans game against the Knicks is actually likely going to matter less for the Pelicans than anything because if – now that's – you can't start assuming results elsewhere. So the Pelicans have to play that game as if they need to win it. But Correct. If the Lakers win as we expect them to and Golden State and or the Clippers don't collapse and lose their last couple of games here, then the Pelicans are going to have nothing to gain other than to stay in eight anyway. So, you know – that's where it, it, it essentially would just be the game against Minnesota that decides if they're 8 or 9. Now, again, they can't take that approach. They have to try to win that game because you can't assume that the Lakers, Clippers, and Thunder are all going to, or the Lakers, Clippers, and Warriors are all going to win their games. But the way I look at the schedule and who those teams are playing and what those teams will have to play for, I wouldn't expect any of those teams to lose either of their last two games. So, honestly, I think the game against the Knicks is going to end up not mattering. However, again... You still need to go out and win it in case something does happen, and that way you do have the opportunity to move up to seven or even six if things really fall your way. The East is all done, which is which is funny because Pretty much, yeah, because you have three teams already punched their tickets to the playing tournament: Hawks, Raptors, and Bulls. They're just trying to figure out in the East if Brooklyn's going to be the six or if Miami's going to be the six. There's a game and a half difference between Brooklyn and Miami yeah. with a couple of games to go. That's it. Everything else right. is 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 locked up and done. And yeah, you could have a you could have Toronto and Atlanta move around, which would matter, of course, because that's that for the playing game. tournament. But they but they're in the tournament. But they're in it. Yes. You just don't know Miami, what the seating is. Miami's in a weird spot where they've got three games left. Most teams only have a couple. Couple, but they've mm-hmm. got three games to play in the next uh, what is it four days? Um, as they'll play today, Friday, and Sunday. So the Heat do, and and boy, do they matter, right? They they have a chance to move up and, and pass Brooklyn, um, which Brooklyn plays Orlando and the Sixers. So, you know, again, Philly's not, probably resting. The problem with the teams that are trying to move up at this point is that almost everyone that the teams that aren't trying to move up are, you know, the teams that are in front of them are playing teams that don't have much to play for. Now still NBA basketball, and guys are going to come to play, right? And the other thing that's interesting is some of these teams that are out of it and or resting guys, you're going to get younger guys who get a chance to play who don't always play, and those guys aren't going to lie down and let them, you know, they're going to give an effort, and a lot of times those guys are trying to just earn their next 10-day contract, you know? So 
you get some weird results, I'm sure. I'm sure not every result where we're sitting go, well, that team doesn't have anything to play for. Somebody's going to beat somebody in the next couple of days that we're not expecting. For the Pelicans' sake, you just hope it's one of the ones that matters to them. Well, and, and, and to your point on that, you know, you look at the other teams, and we and, and I was under the impression that whoever lost the the Battle of L.A. was automatically going to be in the playing tournament. That's not the case. Because the Clippers, they play Portland, which should be a win, and they play at Phoenix, who will probably be resting everyone, right? That's who they wrap up with Saturday and Sunday. Okay. But do you have any faith in this Clippers team not to lose to bad teams? This is a team that's lost to Oklahoma City. This is a team a few weeks ago that lost to Orlando. So, and again, all you I, need is is one loss because the Pelicans have the tiebreaker there. So that's why that's why that Knicks correct. game. You, like I'm saying, I don't think it's going to end up mattering, but you have to play it like it's going to matter because you don't know now. We're coming up on a break, but uh, at some point, can we address the fact that there was no update on our favorite player yesterday when there was scheduled to be one? And <laughs> stunned. We just, but I, that's my problem with the, what the Pelicans do, right? Like, I don't, if he's out, if he's out, like, whatever, but the, the lack of transparency and, like, the, who knows when we're going to drop an update? Like it's a night, like it's a fresh album that they're just like trying to surprise release, right? Like w- just let us know what's going on, you know. And if and if it's as simple as, hey, look, the doctor's appointment is is on Thursday. That's why we didn't give an update. Or if it's as simple as, it's not looking good. We're kind of waiting around to see. You know, it, it maybe looks like it's going to be a couple more weeks. Like just let let the fans know that. You know what I mean? And in the professional sports leagues, you're supposed to be transparent about injury. It's not like college where it's you know kept in house. So. It's just frustrating. That's all. <laughs> hey, oh, once again, there's a lack of transparency with how they're ran. Period. And we had a little bit of a group text thing about the Pelicans and and about the the game last night and the win and everything like that. And there's fundamental problems with the franchise and it has nothing to do with the health of Zion Williamson. Like, we don't have time to do a deep dive on this on the air, but the way Griff conducts himself, the way the front office conducts itself, there's there, there's some there's some fundamental issues of, you know, CJ was great last night. Why did he regress this year? That's a question. Why does Jose Alvarado and Kyra Lewis Jr., who give this team a spark and great energy, never play? Jose never played before the injury. You know, the the injuries are a part of what's going on with the pills, yes, but why did Willie Green regress? Why is his bench not very good, his coaching staff? There's some legitimate fundamental questions that are preventing issues, rather, that are preventing this this, this franchise from achieving. It's, we, we get so focused on Zion and his health, that's not the only reason. It's not the only reason. Just there's other things that they don't do very well that other teams do very well. And those other teams do very well. They compete and they're contenders. There's some fundamental things missing down in New Orleans. We got to take a timeout. When we return here on RP3 and Company, Astros, they got themselves a win yesterday. We'll talk about it. That's next right here on the game. 
This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Tune in every weekday at 8.15 a.m. and 3.15 p.m. for the LSU Sports Update, presented by Tibbs Trailers here on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Astros needed a win, and they got one in a big way yesterday, 8-2 to two over the Detroit Tigers. After Detroit took the first two games of the series, Chaz McCormick, Kyle Tucker, and Jeremy Pena said, eh, there'll be none of that. They all homered and combined for six RBIs to help the Astros snap their three-game skid with a win on Wednesday. McCormick hit a two-run blast in the second off of Eduardo Rodriguez, and then doubled again in the fourth. Tucker homered for a second straight game with a solo shot in the fourth. He also added an RBI double in a two-run seventh as the Astros were able to pad on their lead. And Pena, last year's World Series MVP, connected on a two-run shot off of Tyler Alexander for his first home run of the season with two outs in the eighth to make it 8-2. to two. Pena had struggled early this season and it entered the game on an 0-for-16 slump. Hitting a two-run home run is a good way to get out of a 0-for-16 slump. I'm not a baseball player, but I'm going to go on a limb and say that is, in fact, the right way to do that. Christian Javier pitched well, only allowing one run on five hits with five strikeouts and six innings. So they get the win. See how easy that is? And now they're three and four. <laughs> Just how that works. What you got going on over there, bud? We're trying to have conversation about the Astros. You got something on your phone that obviously is important. Let's talk about it. What you got going on over there? The box score of the Astros game? Is that not important <laughs> enough? So I knew that's what you were looking at. So sorry. <laughs> Jeremy Pena is never going to be a high average guy. That's something I've kind of accepted. I kind of felt like that the whole way, but... um. I agree with that. I'm glad you brought that up because he's never going to be a 300 hitter, right? That's that's not him. He's going to be more, what, like a 275 guy? Probably 275? Um, I mean, I, I would be very happy if he hit 275. I think uh, I think he's about 250. Um, he does a lot for you defensively. He's pretty he clutch. He's in big moments, but I just... He's got a nifty glove, man. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, I just think, like, there was, there was kind of this, like... Astros fan base type thing where they wanted to say he was better than Correa and like he's he's not going to be Correa in my opinion he's not he's never going to be that guy and that's fine like that's you, you don't just replace Carlos Correa with Carlos Correa like he's the number one I, overall pick but. I think he's going to be a better defensive shortstop he's got a chance but Correa is really good defensively too. he's really good but I think he's going to be better I think that's the thing that you when you look at Jeremy Pena you go he could be a better defensive shortstop than Correa and Correa is very good right is he going to be the hitter that Carlos is? No. No. And that's okay because, I mean, th- th- think about this, Dawson. You had Carlos Correa, who helped you win a World Series, was an all-star, was the rookie of the year. And, right, Carlos was the number one overall pick that year when he was drafted, if I remember correctly. So he- here's a guy that 
played one of the toughest positions and most important positions in baseball, was an all-star, was rookie of the year, number one overall pick, could hit for power, and you replace him with a kid, essentially. And what does the kid do? He steps up huge for this team, was an absolute monster in the postseason. I just, you know... Uh, even if he's not Kohler's Correa, you're, you're you're set for, you know, if you can keep him under contract for, you know, 10 years, if healthy. Yeah, and and he's got a chance to grow as a hitter. I, I don't want to say that he's reached his ceiling or That's anything. That's fair. I just, fair. Um, I felt there was a, and this is from an Astros fan perspective, but I just felt there was a little bit of overhyping what he did last year. But, again, he was a rookie, so I guess that's, that's part of it, and that's fair. Like he came up, he. I mean, this was that was the first time he ever had an at bat in the big leagues, and he started 132 games for you, and you know, played almost every inning at shortstop. Like, right. While he they was don't in the win the World lineup. Series. Right. Right. Or even make it there without Jeremy. And there's a, like there's scenarios in which Aledmus Diaz was going to be your everyday shortstop last year, and I don't think Ooh. the I don't know if the Astros are, are the same team if that's the case, right? So correct. I just bring it up because I I just feel like there's kind of maybe an expectation from Astro fans that. He's going to take the next step and hit 300 this year with 30 homers, and I wouldn't expect that. That that's not what. But, but, modern but he doesn't baseball, have to. Also, here's the other thing to your point. The modern game. I grew up in a time where hitting 300, you were expected to hit 300 or around 300 if you were going to be considered one of the league's best hitters. That doesn't exist anymore. No one cares if you hit for 300 anymore. Right? They just don't. Baseball's changed. The analytics have come in and told you that 300 hitters aren't nearly as valuable as someone who's going to bat 250 and give you 30 home runs. That's what the analytics tell you. So maybe Jeremy is just a you know a good reflection of what the modern hitter is. You'd like the average to be higher, and maybe he can still develop as a hitter. But, you know, him and Carlos are different. But, you know, both of them have helped the team win a World Series. Think about that. Just think about the fact that you lost one of your foundation pieces, an all-star foundation piece that helped you win a World Series, and you replace them with a younger kid, and that younger kid steps up in a huge way, Dawson, and helps you win another World Series. Like, And yeah. you don't miss a beat. Like, they didn't miss a beat. Now, Jeremy's numbers aren't as good as Carlos's, but they still didn't miss a beat. Think about that for a second. All right, and it, and it matters, and, and it's it's part of the reason that the Astros have been such a stable, impressive organization, and, and it's also part of the reason it's unbelievable to me that they've done it through different GMs, through different managers. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, you know, like, the the fallout of the sign-stealing scandal in Major League Baseball's I I think some of the, you know, punishments that they put forth and then what the Astros did restructuring – was supposed to hinder them for a few years, right? Like that was the idea. Like they let's punish them and let's let's make sure that they don't have a continued run of dominance. And they did it anyway. Like they went out and hired a new GM, which again, like I, who were the constants there other than owner Jim Crane and like he's it's not like he's involved on an everyday level at the baseball level. So like who were the constants that were responsible for bringing in James Click and things not changing and bringing in Dusty Baker and things not changing? Those guys in the clubhouse are maybe the biggest thing you could point to. Jose Altuve, Correa when he was there, Bregman. Springer when he was there, Bregman. Bregman. And, and here's the thing. Think about what's happened for the Astros during the six-year run. They've lost 
key pieces from that 2017 team. George Springer leaves in free agency, gets a big contract. Carlos Correa leaves in free agency, gets a big contract. Verlander has left this past season, got a big contract. Before that, it was uh, Garrett Cole left and went and got himself a big contract. They lose guys every year that seem to be foundation pieces, right? Yeah, and and everyone said no one's going to want to go play in Houston, and yet Michael Brantley decides to resign repeatedly, and Jose Abreu decides to sign. And like, so they just kind of stomp that narrative out. And I guess winning 100 games a year and going to the World Series every year was what really helps. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I've said it before the, the sign stealing thing matters more to the talking heads, in particular on the East Coast, out of New York, and out of LA. And those fan bases than it does to anybody else. It just it 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 doesn't really matter. Sorry, but it doesn't. Got to take a timeout. When we come back, Masters. It begins today in Augusta. We'll give our thoughts on that. Who do we like to win? Who do we like to have the green jacket slipped on? And then we'll unveil our poll question of the day. That's all next right here on the game. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company. Live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on the game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. The Masters begins today. Will they have a Easter Sunday finish? I'm going to say probably not with the projected thunderstorm system that's going to be going across the southeast this weekend. I don't see it. They want it, and they're going to try everything in their power to have the Sunday finish at Augusta. I just don't see it as a possibility. Probably going to have to have a Monday finish. That said... It is always interesting. And for me, we can talk about so many different golfers in the field. And we can break down the the live guys that are there, and apparently everyone is playing nice. Phil Mickelson didn't even talk during the champion's dinner. Everyone's trying to be respectful, right? And you're trying to let all that nonsense die down because it is complete nonsense in the world of golf. We could, we could take that angle. We could talk about Scotty Shuffler. Can he win back-to-back green jackets? We can talk about Tiger being in the field. But this weekend, Dawson, it's all about one guy. It's all about Rory. And the reason why it's all about Rory is because he's become the face of the PGA Tour, more so than Spieth and Thomas. Rory has put himself out front As the champion of the PGA Tour, he serves on the board now, so he has these additional responsibilities. He's been the most vocal of all the guys on the PGA Tour that have been critical of the guys that have left for the Live Tour. He has become the face of the PGA Tour. He also hasn't won a major in a couple of presidential terms. He is one of the best golfers to ever pick up a club. 
and you see it, and we've seen it in majors. And we saw it last year when he beat Scotty Scheffler to win the FedEx Cup. He's still one of the best golfers in the world. By the way, if you haven't watched the Netflix documentary, it was phenomenal that they did. And they did an episode on Rory, which was very good. There's so many great golfers right now. I'm not talking about the guys that left for live. The only one that really left for live that I would still consider great is DJ. Brooks Kepka's body has broken down on him and he looks like a shell of himself. And Bryson DeChambeau is a chump. And his game has reflected that as well. So DJ is really the only one that I would still consider great. But the best golfers in the world are still on the PGA Tour. And the best golfer on the face of the planet is Rory. But he hasn't won a major in a long time. It's been a long time. And the one that he's missing is the green jacket, is winning at Augusta. He had the opportunity all those years ago when he was trying to first win his first major, and he had the Sunday where he choked it away. And he bounced back and he won all the other majors. Every golf tournament that's been important, major, non-major, match play, Rory's won. Never won at the Masters. And with all the spotlight that he has willingly put on himself because he has willingly accepted the role of being the ambassador for the PGA Tour, for being the face of the tour, for being the guy that is going to be vocal against the competition, against live, against those golfers. It's all about him this weekend. That's the big storyline this weekend. Yeah, it's not for me, but I understand what you're saying. Um, And I'll be rooting for Rory. And I I mean... um, He's played about as well as you can play without winning a major in this stretch of time. It's been really kind of remarkable, and it's not like he's had these big choke moments. I guess he's had a couple. You know, you think about the Open Championship there, and he was in the mix, but... His Saturdays have not been good in the majors. Yeah, and... And Sunday, he actually has been good. The problem for Warrior is he'll have a good first and second round, and then the Saturday moving day is the day where he lets it get away from him a little bit, Mm-hmm. and puts himself just enough out of contention, right? He's never in 35th place. It's Rory's going to be on television on Sunday. He's going to be close to one of the final groupings. And he's going to have a decent Sunday, and he's going to hover around top five, top seven, top ten. But not enough to win the thing. Yeah, and, and you know... His best finish, of course, was last year in this tournament when he came in second. Correct. So that was the closest he'd ever gotten. He hasn't been, you know, he hasn't been bad there because he's made, I mean, look, he's made 12 cuts out of 14 tournaments entered. and He's you know, played well there. Making the cut in a major tournament's not exactly a walk in the park, right? So he's been, you know, up there and he's certainly, you know, look, the odds reflected. I think he's got the second best odds behind Scotty Scheffler. Now, he has the second best odds or the first the best odds or the second best odds in every major he plays in the last 8 years. And and that's that kind of speaks to some of his versatility and his length off the tee. Now, 
I think it's a little more about Scotty Scheffler, though, than, than, than it might be about Rory. I think Scotty Scheffler's got a chance right now to try to – look, nobody's going to become the next Tiger, so I won't even mention that. But a chance to become the next face of golf. He's a great personality. He doesn't seem to be bothered by the spotlight. While he doesn't necessarily seek it out, he doesn't seem to be bothered by it. He's a cool, cool, uh, he's a cool customer. Yeah, he's a fun guy. He's dominant when he's on. Now, the funny thing is he's got that funky swing in a way where he, you know, he's got this footwork where his feet are sliding out from underneath him. and So he's got some entertainment factor with that. And he's playing about as good as anybody He's playing probably better than he was last year when he won the Masters. And so I'm looking at Scotty to potentially, if he wins this, then you start to go back-to-back Masters champion. You start to really put his name in, you know, he's already the, in my opinion, the best golfer in the world right now without question. You start to put yourself into some legendary context if you're able to do that. I will be rooting for Rory and and kind of paying attention as well. Of the live guys you mentioned, I, I mostly agree with you. I do think Brooks Kepka is a guy to watch, and I don't say that because I'm a Florida State guy. He has been playing very well on the live tour in the past few weeks. Coming off of a win, I believe. So keep an eye on Brooksy, but, but it's thirty six holes. Well, no, and look, well, it's fifty four. Because that's what Live stands for. It's Roman numerals, L I V. Yeah. Just saying. His, I I don't I don't know how to respond to you with the with the Brooks Kepka thing. I it, it, playing well on the Live an, tour is not playing well. Is not is not does not going to result in playing well in a major. I'm not putting the farm on him winning. I'm just saying to keep an eye on Kepka if you're going to look at a guy past Dustin Johnson that's one of the Live guys. But anyway, um, the Tigers. Well, I, the, I mean, <laughs> you know, not even really that much of a Brooks guy. But um, anyway, the the Tiger storyline feels a little bit less. Less um, fulfilling or, or less dominant than it has been in years past, which is interesting because every year we and Tiger talks about this almost every time he's asked about it. Like every year could be the last time, right? We don't know. So we saw a lot of hype because, of course, he he tried to play last year and did play and played really well in that first round. Uh, I have I don't feel like we it's been focused on as much, which I almost like. Like let's let's let it. Which it's not going to you know, look if Tiger's anywhere near the first page of the leaderboard after day one. It'll get ramped up. Don't worry. But um, that coming in is a little interesting. Yeah, Phil, you know, the other thing I was going to say about Rory is that he's kind of got the same thing with Phil with the U.S. Open, right? Every time he comes around mm-hmm. to Masters time, it's like, here he goes. Now, Phil, you know, is still looking for that U.S. Open win, and, and at this point his career doesn't look like it's going to happen, right? But for so many years, it's not gonna happen. he got so close, and every time he came around, it was like, and I almost feel like that pressure built up. With Rory, I don't know. I don't get the sense that he feels the same type of pressure maybe that Phil did. I don't think he's built the same, right? I don't think – I think Rory deals with stress and expectations far better than Phil does. I think they're built a little bit differently in that regard. But but for me, look, it's not a knock on Scotty, and if Scotty wins, puts on the green jacket. But for me, it's Rory because of all the other stuff, because he's become the face of the PGA Tour. And proudly so. And he has accepted that. Not all those guys would be accepting of that. Not all those guys would say, you know what? I'm going to I'm gonna take this. I'm going to be the guy. And he willingly said, I got no problem with it. But that also comes with a little added pressure of being able to step up. And look, he's come close, right? His last major championship was the PGA in 2014. It's been that long. It doesn't feel like it's been that long for Rory, but it has been. And you talk about the Masters, four, ten, seven, five, 
21-5, missed the cut, second last year. So he always does well in Augusta. The course suits him. It suits him. It just does. And you feel like, wouldn't it be amazing for him to finally break through and his major drought that's going on a decade and end it at the place where he came all so close of having an opportunity to win it and complete the career slam. That's the story for me. Not a knock on Scotty because if Scotty puts on the green jacket, it's hard to win back-to-back Masters tournaments. That would be amazing. Plus, Scotty, you know, guy on Scotty's bag is from Opelousas. So I'm all about that as well. But if Rory can win the Masters, that's the story for me. No, and, and, and look, like I said, I kind of personally hope he does because um, I kind of root for the guy. and Finished think, in top eight in every major last year, by the way. Well, and that's what I'm saying. It's almost been – it's almost incredible that he hasn't won a major. And you mentioned right. how long it's been because – Typically, those major droughts come with the decline, but Rory's are arguably playing as well as he's ever played. He had the he dip just with the medical issues, right, where the back was, yeah. was, was messing he with was him a little bit. he was gone for you know, a couple of years, it felt like. But, but he came back, and, and is, it looked, he looks as, be- as good as ever. He, he really, really does. He really did. And the last thing I'll say about the Masters tournament, and we might get a chance to talk a little bit more about it, but the wind and the weather kind of is going to be an interesting thing to me. Ooh, yeah. Certain guys, there's a couple, you know, there's certain guys on the tour that don't like adapting to different type of course conditions and are really, and can be, you know, look, some guys can go out and put ridiculous numbers up in perfect conditions. It's going to be, you're going to be talking about up to 30, 35 mile an hour wind gusts at times this weekend. And Augusta's already difficult enough when it's playing, you know, mm-hmm. the way it's designed to be played. Um, you're also talking about the course is going to get a lot of water. We know that. We're, we're hoping that it, Maybe the, the, the timing of the rain helps out to where we can get as much of this tournament in throughout the weekend and maybe go into Sunday with a chance to get it in. But the, the course is going to be wet. It's going to affect rollout. They've also lengthened Augusta over the years, of course, so that's going to be it's going to be a little bit harder for those guys to maybe reach some of the longer distances with the wind and everything else. Um, who can adapt to the weather conditions the best? And, you know, at the end of the day, some of these tournaments, the guys who get the favorable weather conditions – are the guys who have the best chances, right? If 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 some guy gets, you know, the pretty decent weather, goes up and puts a low number, the afternoon weather is even windier, might not have a chance. We got to take a break. More RP3 and company coming up. We'll close out hour number one, unveil the poll question. That's next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Poll question of the day here on RP3 and Company. What is the best golf major? Is it the Masters, which begins today? Is it the U.S. Open? Is it the Open Championship? Or is it the PGA Championship? Overwhelmingly, 97% of you right now say the Masters. I will later on in today's show give you my opinion, which is going to be wildly different than yours. Just letting you know. I'm just letting you know. Hour number one in the books. Hour number two, we'll kick it off with James Yasko of the Lima Time Time podcast. That's next right here on The Game. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything. 
Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Oh, we're back. Hour number two has arrived on this jam-packed edition of RP3 and Company as we broadcast live from the FCO Development Studios here in Upper Lafayette. FCO Development is a civil construction company that specializes in new multifamily construction. I'm the big, bald, and beautiful one. Of course, I'm joined inside the studios by Dawson Iserlow, the producer extraordinaire. Coming up half an hour from right now, we'll be talking with Jeff Willis, the longtime national championship winning baseball coach for the LSUE Bengals. That'll be coming up. Don't forget also to vote on our poll question of the day. We asked you, what is the best major in golf? And as expected, overwhelmingly, all of you are saying the Masters. That's not how I voted. <laughs> Just to let you know, we'll talk more about that later on today's edition of RP3 and Company. But please continue to vote and leave your comments, your thoughts on Facebook and Twitter as well. But right now, it's time for us to talk all things Houston Astros with our buddy from the Lima Time Time podcast and a contributor for the Houston Chronicle. James Yasko joins us now. James, good morning. Um, first question. I follow you on social media like many do. Uh, why have you been on such an emotional roller coaster for your team, knowing that they always start off slow every year and still find a way to make it to the ALCS? It's one hundred percent pandering. That's all it is. Like it's just it's just playing to the crowd. <laughs> but they always always struggle. Always struggle every year. Guess who comes out the gate struggling? And it's your Houston Astros. And they always start off slow. It doesn't matter who's playing or who's not playing, who's injured, who's not injured. It doesn't matter. And they find a way to make it to the ALCS. Why do you think that is? Why do you think this team is built in a way where they can start off the first month of the season being average or below average and are just able to kind of turn it on and say, you know what, we got this, and let's go try to compete for another World Series title? I, I think... I, I think well. I think if if Dusty had anything, not of course he has something to do with it, but I think Dusty would 100% prefer to be six and zero, seven and zero right now. Um, I don't I don't know that they're built to start slow. It just it takes some time to get <clears throat> sort of get that feel and get that rhythm back. I mean, Kyle Tucker started off just fine. Jordan Alvarez started off just fine. Uh, Pena showed signs of life yesterday. Bregman, we're not going to see Bregman until May. That's just how his his career has evolved. Where in, in March and April he looks absolutely lost. I mean, and that's that's like demonstrably true. Like like the only month that he has an OPS under like 840 is is the March April. Uh, in August his his career OPS in August is over 1,000. Like he it, it'll be fine. It just takes some time. Give me your thoughts. I know it's early. We're only five games in, right? So, you know, it's five or six games in. So it's not a large sample. Uh, but what has kind of stood out to you about this team so far? Uh, you know, when when they when they don't 
have the extra base hits there. And I think this is true for, for any major league baseball team. If all you're hitting is singles, then, then it, it's going to be a little bit more difficult to, to score runs. Uh, and so, you know, it, it sort of changed a little bit yesterday. Yesterday was a fun game. Um, but, you know, I, I want to say, what, 41 of their first 48 hits of the season were, were singles. And that, um, unless you're getting three or four of those in a row, uh, it, it's hard to do. It's, it's hard to generate much offense like that. So, um, you know, uh, outside from, from Tucker and Alvarez, you know, as we kind of wait on Brantley to come, Brantley will be back before Altuve will. Uh, Brantley is going to, that's going to be a huge boost to, to the lineup. Also, like, don't ever let me see Jake Myers at the plate ever again, please. Like, just just put Chaz in there and and leave it alone. <laughs> so, I guess my question in that in that regard is, Chaz, we know is the better defensive player, right? And I know people get frustrated with his bat not being what it is, but when you have a lineup the the way the Astros do, do you near do you really need? all nine of your guys or all eight of your position players to be able to hit like I just you know I grew up in a time where you had guys in your lineup that couldn't hit and they were the eight hole hitter because they couldn't hit but they gave you something else with their glove like why can't why can't Astros just be happy with that because we can't be happy with anything because any kind of failure is a is a reflection of us as human beings like that's that's of course that's that's how that is but no if you're if you're about my age you remember Years of Astros lineups that ended uh, Everett Osmus pitcher, and it was just a black hole until you turned it over to to Craig Biggio. So, I, I think, I mean, you it would be great if you had, you know, nine spots in the lineup where everybody raked. Um, I understand the defensive capability, but I, I still I still think Chaz McCormick is the guy you put in uh, in center field, you know, and until. You know, and, and, and until the season's over, uh, but I understand why Dusty is trying to protect egos and trying to build confidence. But um, you just, uh, you know, do do what you run the best lineup out there every day, no matter what. We're talking with James Yasko. He's the co-host of the Lima Time Time podcast. He's also a contributor for the Houston Chronicle. He joins us here on RP Three and Company. Bregs always starts off slow. You always want him not to, but he just never does. Uh, he kind of always just has to find his own way. And that's okay because there's always somebody else that steps up. But when you look at this lineup, no Altuve there to help Bregs. Jeremy Pena, Dawson and I were discussing this earlier. You know, I think expectations are this is a guy that can be a 300 hitter. He may be more like a 250 hitter, and, and that's okay if he is. So, you know, no Brantley yet either. So, who do you think needs to maybe step up a little bit more while Bregs is struggling? Uh, some, you know, David Hensley had a couple of good at bats. It, it needs to come from further down. Uh, it, it needs to be. For, for further down in the lineup, because if you've got if, if if Bregman miraculously gets on base in the month of April, then you know you've you've got Jordan and you've got Kyle Tucker behind him. They're going to get on. Who's going to drive them in? And so it, it, it can't be that steep of a drop off from Kyle Tucker to one batter, two batters later. 
So it, it needs to be someone like a McCormick, like a Hensley, uh, to, to step up and, <clears throat> and protect the guys protecting Bregman. What do you make of what you've seen um, from uh, Abreu so far? Yeah, good. Fun. Love it. Great, Love great answer. Thanks, James. Yep. Appreciate you coming on, bud. <laughs> Have a good weekend. Um, the, uh, um, you know, it's, he's still he, – it feels like he's been around a long time. Uh, but but in, re, in reality – he hasn't. So as long as he just keeps progressing, then that's that's the direction that you're looking for. You're not looking for, you know, I mean, obviously, he if he popped off and was a Cy Young candidate, then that'd be great. But that's that's not necessarily what you're. You, you need someone who will eat some innings uh, and and limit damage and <clears throat> let the offense go to work. So you, you don't need Brian Abreu to be Justin Verlander. Not that one, bud. Jose Abreu. There you go. <clears throat> The other Abreu, I well, I just yeah, I just gave you, well, I just answered one of your later questions. So <laughs> you you did. Welcome. I was like, in my in my it's, head, no, like, in, in James's the, defense, I'm I'm gonna interject question, here. Brian Abreu, okay, not I wasn't exactly ready in, for that. Uh, no, in, in, in your defense, um, it's Thursday. You see, typically you come on Fridays, and you have an extra day to prepare and to get sharp. I've thrown you off by asking you to come on a day early. That's my bad. This is this is not I, your bad. This is my bad. My pants are on backwards right now. I do not know what is going on. Um, well, I just I, I just thought you were you know the vice president of the Crisscross Fan Club in Texas. But. <laughs> uh, Jose Abreu, uh, he's uh, a, a better version of 2022 Yuli Gurriel. Um, I, I think it's I'm, I'm, he's fun to watch. I mean, and and not the not the Yuli was as well. So it, it's just it's part of the culture in the clubhouse that the Astros have spent the past, the past few years creating um, that you, you know, solid dudes that are, that are fun and, and take it seriously and play hard and produce. And, you know, I think you can expect that from Abreu from this point forward. Do you think he can be the guy to kind of carry the load for this team? Because look, a great start to the season for Alvarez and Tucker, right? So, you're getting great production there already. You know you're going to get Brantley back sooner than later, and you expect him to give you a good pop, and Jeremy Pena will eventually get started. But, I mean, what role do you think, with all this talent, with all this veteran experience already on the line, already, you know, in the lineup, what is Abreu's what, – what should the expectation be for the former Chicago White Sox star? I think, I think the three words that – that sort of sum up the, the how the Astros are built uh, is do your job. Just do your job, and and if everyone does their job, then everything's going to be okay. And so, you know, it's, it's not as though the Astros need, you know, five or six years ago they needed a veteran. They needed a veteran presence. Uh, the Astros are the veterans, you know, as, as far as, you know, pretty much <clears throat> with the exception of like Hensley and Dubon, of course, and Chaz McCormick, but, but everyone's been there before. So you just need Abreu to do Jose Abreu things, and, and everything's going to work out. He, he doesn't need to carry the team, um, but but just if he does his job, then it's, it's going to be okay. We'll wrap it up with this, brother. On the, uh, the TV slate that we use here, our guy, Dawson Islow, the producer extraordinaire, has, uses a photo of you from your days at the Baseball Hall of Fame, you got short hair, you're wearing a sweater vest, you, you have a glean in your eye, 
of you just, you know, so passionate about what's the future holds for you. Uh, what would you tell that younger version of yourself? Uh, d- d- stop trying. Like, like you're not impressing anyone. Like, yeah, just do what you, do what you want to do, 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 and do what you want to do to the best of your ability. And if that if that is if that involves screwing up, then screw up to the best of your ability. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just looking at a guy right now that's just filled with so much hope. <laughs> has yeah, no think, idea I think what's the coming. Word, the word for me now is. Swarthy. I, I've definitely embraced a, a, a swarthy aesthetic, uh, and I'm, I'm leaning into it. You own it better than most, my friend. Hey, but happy Easter, seriously, to uh, you and your family, man. I hope you guys have a great holiday weekend. Hope you're safe out there, and we'll talk to you next week, brother. Hey, ha- happy Easter, uh, and the answer is obviously British Open. Thank you. <laughs> there it is. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. There are some hosts that talk like they know everything, but you don't have to worry about our guy, RP3. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. That's because he never knows what he's talking about. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Back to the show in the know. RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. The first round of the Masters has officially teed off. That's right. We have the first pairing through the first hole. Mike Weir and Kevin Na. Mike Weir parred hole number one. Kevin Na got himself a double bogey. Not the optimal start to the day for Kevin. That's you a- got man, you got the the gallery out there. You know the honorary starter goes off too, yes. and I mean I, I didn't see who it was for the first hole, but you know it's obviously a legendary figure in golf history. Hits the tee shot. Now their tee shot can go in the woods. Doesn't matter. They don't have to play their next shot, right? <laughs> They're not picking it up. And Kevin Na walks up there and is probably feeling good. He's had a week of preparation, and you you make six on the first hole. That's just tough. That's uh, that's that- what I would do. Well, I would probably make ten, but. <laughs> but- yeah, I would be I would be getting a snowman at least at least if not a ten. You're correct. So, first round of the Masters is up and going. Now, our poll question of the day is: What is the best major in golf? And many of you have dropped your sarcastic comments in the comment section on the poll question. And with your votes, ninety three percent of you say the Masters. of you are voting for the PGA Championship. We're going to have a conversation about that. 2% say the Open Championship, no votes for the U.S. Open. And Brett, who is my nephew, by the way, is this a real poll question? And yes, it is. And Salty Steve goes, hmm, Captain Obvious. And I replied back to him, by the way, my personal pick is not obvious. I love the Masters. I absolutely do. It is on the bucket list of an event to either go to as a fan or cover as a member of the media. It is. I watch the Masters. I love the Masters. I'm borderline obsessed about the Masters. But for me, the best major in golf is the Open Championship. 
it's played in the birthplace of golf. And the conditions are always challenging. You deal with the tall grass, which the U.S. Open tries to do when they put in the 18 different layers of rough for their tournament to try to make it difficult because the U.S. Open wants the final score to be plus two. The wind is absolutely gnarly every single year. You watch the world's best golfers go across the pond and they go up and they tee off and they watch their tee shot and they're just helpless and they just go, well, there I am in a five-foot hole deep bunker surrounded by three-foot high grass and it's blowing 45 miles per hour outside. I love that. And if you asked me if I had a choice and I was given the opportunity to cover or to attend either the Masters or the Open Championship, I'm picking the Open Championship every single That's time. That's the wrong answer, though. That's the thing. It is, an Americ- it is an American viewpoint on this that everyone picks the Masters. I don't know. I don't know about that because the because yeah, there's, it is because the Masters is not the U.S. Open. It's not the if you want to compare U.S. Open to Open Championship, British Open as the U.S. people that call it that sometimes. By the way, British people don't like when you call no, it the that. British people, the folks in Britain, in England, in Scotland, do not appreciate the Open Championship being called which, the British Open, which I, of course, called it as the Open Championship. Hey, no, I, I understand being a UL person, being called Louisiana, and getting Lafayette and things thrown at you. I understand, so I will call it the Open Championship. But anyway, um, if you want to compare U.S. Open to Open Championship about who has the better national championship, I can understand that. But the Masters is an event that's separate from that. It's not tied to America. It happens to take place in the U.S., but it's not based on the United States it's not our national championship of golf. I think it's its no, own No, it's not the national championship of golf, but it has and, become the most important tournament in this country. Yes, but number one, the exclusivity of it, I think, would make, if you were just choosing to cover one I would or go to one, I would have to choose the Masters simply because it's that difficult. The Open Championship, you can get tickets to if you pay the money, right? But So that's part of the reason I would just... Also, the flight across... The pond no, look, is I'm a, not, it's not cheap. Right. No, I'm not saying it's easy, but. <laughs> what? what just happened? It's okay. I turned your mic off. Anyway, um, my point being that the Masters in itself has this sort of allure and just like larger than life type of experience. It is Ramona. It, it is very, and to use a feminine word, it's a very romantic notion of oh, a absolutely. golf tournament, right? And yes, all of that plays into it. I'll tell you this: CBS's coverage of it plays into my, you know, feelings of the Masters because I've grown up with that. And whether it's ESPN's early round coverage, the different broadcast packages, the color schemes, of course, the green and yellow that comes out for the Masters, like everything that it is. Jim Nance with the Hello Friends. I mean, I, I'm going to get chills when he says it this week. Now he says he's going to be calling the Masters until he told me. I think like. He didn't tell me. He, he told, said he told, out loud. He yeah, told you personally, correct did he? myself there. He said he's going to be calling it for, you know, uh, I, I think a decade more. He wants to call a bunch more, even though he's done with the Final Four, right? But, like, all of that plays into it for me, and so the Masters is number one. Now, I, I have clear power rankings. The U.S. Open for me is two, but I could understand the Open Championship. And when it is at St. Andrews and when it does have certain, you know, things going for it in a given year, I do, you know, like last year I valued it more than the U.S. Open. Um 
But what I do love about the U.S. Open is I like seeing golfers challenge, and I know I'm against, like, I also like seeing errors in baseball, and some people think that's crazy. I like seeing, I don't want to see the golfers go out and shoot 20 under in a tournament. I want to see them battle to make par. That's what I enjoy about golf. So that's one thing I really enjoy about the U.S. Open, sometimes even more so than the Masters. Not to say Augusta's easy, but at times, you know, you've had guys go up and put crazy numbers up. So I think it was a few years ago at Shinnecock when, like, literally par was a good score on almost every hole. Correct. Like, I love that type of stuff. Um, So for me, it goes Masters, U.S. Open, Open Championship, and the PGA Championship. It's a major, but it's, you know. You could argue the Players' Championship is a better event than the PGA Championship. Or you could even, and I I don't know, a lot of golfers probably wouldn't tell you that because they know the PGA Championship holds a lot of weight, but like even the Tour Championship, you know, finale of the FedEx Mm. Cup playoffs, I think has a, you know, is right up there with the PGA Championship. But anyway, I just just think the Masters, like I think that's what it is. And and it's okay. I mean, you you can be wrong, as Kevin Foote says. Uh, It's, that's fine. But um, it's just special. Just a special week. That was a joke, by the way. You didn't laugh. You didn't smile. You didn't give anything. But anyway, I mean, it's just you know, the oldest golf tournament, the the one from the birthplace of golf. You just you you, you put number three on your list, which okay, that, but but it's fine. not played at the birthplace of golf every year, though. That's my thing. It rotates around. So like I Correct. said, in the years where it's at St Andrews, which the other thing is St Andrews, the golf course is now a lot different. And now, you know, while we're talking about the PGA, we don't have time to get into the rollback on the golf balls and things they're discussing that would maybe make St. Andrews a better option for the tournament because, you know, it's kind of been outgrown by PGA pros. But anyway, the years that it's there, I put more weight into it and I would have it above the U.S. Open in those years. It's just that it rotates around and some of those courses, not to say they're not great when it's in, you know, Ireland like it yeah, was but the U.S. Open ago. rotates. Yeah, it does. And that's, again, some of those years when it's at courses where guys put up low numbers, I actually am less interested in it. Not that I, I say less interested. It's all relative, right? It's still a major championship, and I'm a big golf fan, but that's all. Mm-hmm. The other thing about the U.S. Open... Man, the man prefers the green jacket over the claret jug. I do. The other, the other thing mm-hmm. about the U.S. Open that's, that kind of puts it there is like the fact that it is you know my country's tournament. Now, not to say I'll ever have a chance to play in it, but like I have a friend who's you know, was a competitive golfer who's going to play in U.S. Open qualifiers, like, and has oh, a... Oh, someone's bragging. Continue. No, no, listen, Flexing he, he doesn't play competitively anymore, and he has little to no chance of actually making it, right? But since it is, they call it the U.S. Open, and I don't know if people realize it, it is an open tournament. You can qualify in, like, you Correct. could. And so, that's cool, too. Like, I'm hoping I have a chance to caddy for him in some of those qualifying tournaments that he plans to do, but, like, that's... Also part of the U.S. Open thing. The so fact I can is, go ahead and expect absence request forms from you. This is years away. I'm not okay. talking about, you know, but I mean, if it works out, then yeah, sure. My point is like, it's so, it, it's, it's, it's there. And it's like, it feels some, a lot of these tournaments, you know, we're not pro golfers and I'm not a pro golfer and I don't know any pro golfers. So I don't feel that connection to it. But like the U.S. Open is literally an open tournament that, you know, anybody who lives in the U.S. can qualify for or even otherwise. So that's cool. Let's get to some comments. We already shared a couple of them. Cajun Jack says, come on, which I guess means I'm assuming Cajun Jack says, obviously, it should be the Masters. Which, look, I know I'm in the minority here. I'm okay with that. I've been in the minority about this for 40 years. And I remember Jack, my first memories of the Masters is Jack winning it at the age of 46. And I've watched the Masters my entire life. And I've watched the Open my entire life. And I love the U.S. Open. And I would put the Masters and the U.S. Open on the same thing. They're they're 2A and 2B for me. Okay? 
So I love them all, and I understand that I am in the minority, but for me, it's the Open Championship. It, it, it just is. Who Dat Forever says, I would rather watch this and share the gift of grass growing. <laughs> Coach Eric Howard says, I love the Masters. It's my favorite, but a close second is the Open Championship across the pond. Golf is their baseball. That's why it's a gentleman's game. JPK, the OD, says, Augusta on Masters weekend is something that everyone should find a way to experience just once in their lifetime. Shane Lowry or Tommy Flutewood are my dark horse picks to take it this year. Nice. B-Rad says, eh, another small ball question. Well, the PGA Championship determines the PGA Championship, so I guess it would be the least boring. Ralph Bergeron says, Masters is the best to watch with limited commercials. Azalea's blooming, piped-in bird chirp, and our friend Jim Nance's soothing voice. U.S. Open is the toughest. The Open is cool because it's on when you wake up. PGA, hmm, I'd rather watch the TPC. I I, I, I kind of, yeah. Look, the, the 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 players' championship at TPC Sawgrass is the fifth major. Um, it's technically not a major, but it's considered one by many of the golfers. Ralph says just the concession prices make the Masters the best. Ton says I'll admit it, I'm not a golf fan, but I'll at least halfway watch the Masters. John Paul Cage and Daddy says I don't even play or watch golf, and I know the answer to this question is the Masters. More like a multiple choice test question is like gym class, not a poll question. There's a right answer for this one. Look, once again, I love the Masters. But I feel that the Open Championship is the best major in golf. I just think that's how I just feel about it. I know I'm in a minority, and you came out hot against me. It's fine. It's fine, yeah. It's fine. It's fine. You told me that I'm wrong. That's fine. Um, we'll see how that absence report comes out for you, if that gets approved or not. Um, we got to take a timeout. Keep those votes coming and this comments coming on our poll question of the day. LSUE baseball skipper, a man that's won more national championships than most. Jeff Willis will join us next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company. Live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on The Game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. You know, in baseball, if you just win a series, that's considered wildly successful. Maybe you can win a couple of series. Maybe you can get a couple of sweeps, right? I mean, when we talk about baseball teams here in the state, college teams or even pro teams, if you can win the series and if you get a series sweep, that's ideal. Well, our friends over on the Cajun Prairie are raising the bar when it comes to expectations on wins and losses because the program that has won, count it, seven national championships since 2006 has begun the season 36-0. I'll say it again for those who may be just tuning in. The LSUE Bengals are 36-0 to start the season. Uh, last time I checked, that's probably really, really good. To talk about his team's absolute phenomenal start and 
to help preview a big, huge series this weekend at Bengal Stadium against Delgado Community College is the longtime skipper and athletic director at LSUE. Our friend Jeff Willis joins us now. Coach, good morning, brother. Happy Easter to you and your family, my friend. How are you? Uh, we're good, man. Happy Easter, Raymond. Uh, joy to be with you guys this morning. And, um, you know, hopefully the weather will hold out on us this weekend, but just exciting times for our baseball club and, and those kids and what they're, what they're kind of going through and what they're accomplishing right now. Well, we'll get to the, the series against Delgado because that's always a wildly entertaining and always a competitive series. But let's talk about this season. Uh, if we would have spoke before the start of the year and I would have told you, hey, coach, um, do you think your team has a really good chance to go 36-0 and to start the year? You would have said, what? <laughs> no, I definitely would have. We would we would have laughed about that. Um, I, I tell you what, and, and the other part of that of us being the youngest team I've ever had, and so we're the youngest team without any experience compared to my previous twenty years. And just to see the kids and just to see them show up every day um, with with the mentality of, of it's just time to go to work, and uh, they're reaping what they're sowing right now. And and we've taken advantage of other teams blunders and, and made them pay for that and those teams really haven't made us pay yet and so that could be on the horizon but the kids show up and they go to work each and every day and it's exciting to see that um, because I think in today's day and age kids get a bad rap you know people say the kids aren't the same as they were 20 years ago or they are the same as they were 20 years ago um, and it's just a joy to watch them show up and want to go to work and want to compete each and every day you guys are hitting the ball at just a phenomenal pace and it looks like you got eight everyday uh starters contributors that are batting at least 300 on the roster including Corey Cooper who's batting a you know just a pedestrian 407 on the year uh just how good is your lineup coach well, there's not an easy out in it. Um, you know, in, in some years you'll have maybe one, two guys, sometimes three guys that if you get a little bit of production out of them, it's a bonus. Um, but, but when those guys have to pitch against our lineup, there's really not an easy out. And you know, with Corey Cooper, I mean, a testament to his work ethic. You know, last year wasn't a year that went his way and, you know, hitting the low 200s. And, and that wasn't his talent level to hit in the low 200s and had a great summer, came back, worked his tail off, and he's reaping the benefits of that work ethic. And it's exciting to see that. And just knowing that in, you know, in that lineup as well, you know, a guy can run the ball out of the yard. And so we didn't have that last year. You know, we had a one, two guys that might be able to do that. But now we have the ability to hit the three-run home run with the guys that can run the bases and steal the bases and manufacture the runs if the conditions dictate that we need to do that. Parker is having an absolute monster season. Uh, he has 112 at-bats, more than anybody else on the team, and yet that hasn't seen his production drop. He leads you in home runs with seven. He leads you – he's tied for the lead with RBIs with 32, and he's got a team-high 13 doubles, the only player on your roster that's got double-digit doubles. Uh, he is just an extra base hit machine. Talk about just his progression this season, Coach. Yeah, same thing with 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 Parker. I mean, he, you know, he had a decent year last year, but again, he didn't. I didn't think he played up to his ability, and and he went to work. And you know, both those kids had had tough exit meetings. You know, after last season with me, and um, both those kids responded in a big way. And 
Um, you know, they, they both show up with smiles on their faces. And they want to compete and they want to get after their opponent. Um, you know, they have this throwdown mentality when they step on the field that, you know, there's a competition and somebody's winning and somebody's losing. And so when you see that in those kids and just, just a testament to their work ethic and, you know, and coaches say that all the time, but, but I, I can tell you this, you know, yesterday morning on a Monday morning, um, or last, this past Monday, when we're in the weight room at six o'clock in the morning and you see those guys with some energy, um, after, you know, which, which people can get complacent when they have that type of record and they don't have that right now. And, Hopefully, you know, our best baseball is ahead of us because I still don't think we've played the best game we're capable of playing. We're talking with Jeff Willis. He's the man that's in charge of the LSUE Bengals baseball program. He's guided them to count them seven national championships. His team has started off this season 36-0. and They got a big series this weekend against Delgado Community College. They're on the Cajun Prairie. He joins us here on RP3 and Company. Coach, I want to talk about how dominant, how great you guys are on the base paths. You have attempted to steal 147 stolen bases, and your guys have gotten 122 of them. That is an absolute monster number. Everyone seemingly has adapted to being able to steal bases and be aggressive on the base paths. Where does that come from? Where does that begin, that kind of mentality, that mindset, and that execution? Well, I, well, we talk about it a lot. You know, I, We've always had the offensive mindset that we want to try to create chaos. Um, and it's got to be controlled chaos. But our goal is to try to spin the game out of control on our opponent. Um, because most baseball games are won when one team scores – more runs in one inning than the opposing team, you know, scores in the entire game. And crooked numbers that go up on the scoreboard win baseball games. And most of the time, it's going to either have to be a three-run home run for that crooked number to go up there, or it's going to be the inning where there's a catalyst that takes place, whether it be a walk, a hit-by-pitch, an error, stolen base, a dirt ball read, pass ball, wild pitch. Those are catalysts for big innings. And we have to be excited when we walk. A lot of people don't want to do that, but but that's a catalyst. That's a that's that can be a backbreaker on your opponent when you're able to get on base. And then we spend a lot of time on base running. I think it's a lost art. I think if you watch Major League Baseball, which you will see more stolen bases this year with the different rule changes with the pitch clock and with the pickoff rules, and the bases are four and a half inches closer. Um, you'll see more stolen bases at that level. But I think we've lost that art in the game. And we'll spend at least 30 minutes every single practice on base running because we know base running doesn't go away. The conditions with if the wind's blowing in on us, if the pitcher's really good that day and he's got not, you know, not just two pitches for strikes, if he's got three pitches for strikes, it's going to be tough to get you know seven runs off of that guy. And that's our goal. If we can get to seven runs in a game, we're going to win over 95% of our games. And so that's a goal, and we know stolen bases are going to have to be a part of that. And it's just how much we're going to practice it and how much we're going to focus on it and get the kids to buy into what we're doing with base running. And once they see it, once they see that game get spun out of control and then four or five runs go up, and you may have had two hits in the inning, but there was a walk, there was a hit by pitch, um, there might have been an error because the defense is on their heels now, now you throw in the short game with drag bunts and push bunts and safety squeezes, and you do that, 
that's how you win baseball games. I've always been a big believer in that. And then if you have the ability at, at one point in time where the wind is pushing out or not blowing and you can hit the three-run home run, you're going to win at a very, very high clip. Coach, just hang out a little bit. we got to take a timeout. We'll have more of our conversation here with LSUE skipper Jeff Willis. We'll talk about that pitching staff, which has been really good, about dealing with the expectations of being 36-0, and and of course, look ahead to this weekend series against Delgado. That's all coming up next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Go subscribe to The Game's YouTube channel, At The Game Louisiana. That way you can check out the latest original videos and more shenanigans from The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Welcome back to RP3 and Company. Jeff Willis, the longtime skipper and athletic director for LSUE, rejoins us here. All right, Coach, you mentioned it before we took the timeout about, you know, if you get to six or seven runs, you feel like you have a great chance to win every game. Well, part of that is because you have very good and deep pitching this season. You already have 13 guys that have recorded a victory on your staff and you got one guy that is putting together an all-American type of campaign. Of course, I'm talking about Connor, 7-0 and on the season, 0.89 ERA. He already has 59 strikeouts. He has been absolutely filthy for you. Yeah, with, with those starting guys right now, you know, I, I can kind of go back to the team we had in really 2015 when we had Mitch Seawald, who went to TCU after us. Um, big right-handed power yep. arm. You know, Mitch was six foot seven and and had been up to ninety eight, ninety nine that year, um, and, and was pitching kind of ninety three, ninety five. And Ben Bramer was our number two that year. He's, you know, he's been been went to Auburn after he played for us. You know, Ben was in the big leagues with the with the Nationals, and so we had the third guy was Sam Wally, who actually went to Southern Miss and pitched over there. And so you, we had a really good staff. And now this year most of these guys are all freshmen and, you know, Connor, Connor had committed to Texas A&M and with the coaching change over there, he opened up his recruitment. Um, we were able to get in there and get Connor and he's had a phenomenal spring and his velocity has jumped and, um, you know, and, and he's done very, very well. And then you throw in Parker Webb, um, kid out of Tennessee and one of the better arms out of Tennessee and, you know, Parker earlier in the year got up to 98, um, and both those guys have been pitching, you know, not touching, but pitching in the mid-90s. And then you throw Patrick Vienne in that mix, who was our number one last year, who I still consider our number one right now. Um, he'd been on the shelf for the last two or three weeks, and he got back in the game on this past uh, weekend. He'll be able to pitch this weekend. He led the country in wins last year, Patrick did, and, you know, signed over at UL um, for the Raging Cajuns, and he'll have a great career for them after he leaves us. So that gives us three really, really good starting pitchers, and then the middle relievers have been throwing lights out, and then Josh Gregoire closing the game down have been good. And those velocities have jumped, and, you know, they're power arms, and, you know, they're not pitching 88 to 90. Those guys have been pitching, you know, 90 to 94 and then touching those fives and sixes. And when you do that at any level of college baseball – you know, you have a chance to win at a very, very high level because now your pitching can go win a game for you. Exactly. Um, and so 
your pitching can win a game for you, and then offensively, your your offense can win a game for you, and you put those two two things together, you got a chance to win at a very very high level. Coach, only got about forty five seconds, but. Uh, where do we stand with this weekend series against Delgado? I know we have the storm system coming through the area and the entire southeast. So what's the plan for the weekend series there on the Cajun Prairie? Yeah, it doesn't look like we're going to sneak our doubleheader in tomorrow. It looks like we'll try to sneak in one tomorrow night and then try to sneak the doubleheader in on Saturday afternoon. And going to be a great matchup. A lot of respect for Delgado and Coach Sherman over there. They play the game the right way. They're coached well. they got really good players. Um and it's, it's going to be a good matchup um, between two really, really good clubs, and, and you're going to have to play very, very well to, to, to be able to come out on top of the scoreboard. Coach, always appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Congrats on the great start to the season. Best of luck this coming weekend, and happy Easter to you and your family, brother. Happy Easter. Appreciate you guys. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Oh, welcome back to RP3 and Company, 803 has arrived, which means it's the final hour of today's show, which also means it's the final hour of the week. We're off tomorrow for Good Friday for the Easter holiday. Coming up, half an hour from right now, author John DeCant will join us. He wrote a great book called Little Poison. It's a historical book about golf. You're going to love it. Got to stay tuned for that. Obviously, it's Masters weekend. First round is up and running over at Augusta. Our guy Kevin Na is still on the struggle bus. Back to back bogeys on four and five. Not optimal. He's up to plus three now on there. Leading the tournament is the 29 year old I care professional amateur golfer, golfer, golfer from Northern Ireland, Matthew McLean. He's leading the Masters right now at one under. What a great story for him. The guy is an eye care professional. He won an amateur tournament to qualify to get into the Masters. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine just being, working at a local place, getting people fitted for their glasses, like Dawson or yours truly, RP3, and you're doing that? And you're like, you know what? I'm going to go play in this amateur tournament, the tournament and see what happens. And you win it, and then you get to go to the Masters. That's pretty phenomenal. Absolutely pretty phenomenal. Obviously, first-round action just has begun. We had about, it looks like maybe six or seven groups have already teed off. So we'll keep tracking that for you throughout today here on RP3 and Company. We also have a poll question of the day. What is the best major in golf? overwhelmingly you guys say the masters and you're upset with me because i don't say the masters um three percent say the pga championship which is mind-blowing to me two percent say the open championship which i say is the best major in golf and then two percent of you say the u.s open keep those votes coming on the poll question of the day keep your comments coming as well we'll continue to share them 
throughout the remainder of today's show. But right now, it's time for us to talk about those New Orleans Pelicans that gutted out an overtime win against the Memphis Grizzlies last night to keep pace for a spot in the play-in tournament, as well as maybe get to some news about the Saints with our guy, Les East from CrescentCitySports.com. He joins us now. Les, good morning to you, brother. Happy Easter to you and yours, my friend. Well, thanks, Raymond. Happy Easter to you, too. Oh, thank you, bud. All right. How big was that win last night for the Pills? After having an opportunity to get a, a good win against a very good Sacramento Kings team, they let that one get away from them. They got bullied a little bit in that game. To be able to come back, and I know Memphis didn't have John Morant. I understand that. But they still needed the win. How big was last night's victory for the Pills? Well, it was enormous. Uh, it, it not only uh, clinched a play-in spot, at least a play-in spot for them. They're, they're still in um, position to possibly skip the play-in tournament if they can get to five or six and go straight to the playoffs guarantees them uh, at least one home game after the end of the regular season so that they're um, they're just playing for positioning in these last two games. Right? They removed the threat of not making the postseason. And uh, it was one of the wildest games in any sport at any level that I've ever covered. It was just incredible to be down 19 points and then to make nine consecutive three-pointers to take the lead and then blow a six-point lead in the final 4.8 seconds, I believe it was, of regulation. First time in 20 years the team has blown a six-point lead in the final five seconds and then just shrug that off and go score the first 10 points of overtime and win. Uh, it was just uh, an incredible a swing of emotions, but uh, it got him into the play-in, and that, that's all that matters at this point. Two games left. What do you think they have to do less to avoid being on that 9-10 line or avoid maybe being just the 19? Because obviously that makes things far more difficult. They'd like to be at least at 8, if not at 7, so they can host that first play-in tournament game. What do you think they need to do here with two games left against the Knicks on Friday and then wrapping it up with the Timberwolves game on the road? Well, I think winning both games would give them a pretty good chance of getting at least um, to, to seven or eight, and, that, and they could possibly get higher than that. The Lakers losing last night certainly helped them. They, uh, they're they one game behind the Clippers and Golden State, who are uh, five and six, they hold the tiebreaker with both of those teams. So if they win both, uh, they're going to move up. Uh, I, I think that's that's pretty certain. Uh, if they split, then it all depends on what happens with other teams. It also depends on which game they win and which one they lose, because potentially Minnesota could be a factor in that. And they play at Minnesota on Sunday. That game will determine the tiebreaker in that thing. So. There's a lot that can still happen. They're uh, fortunate in that um, uh, they're going to get probably a shorthanded Knicks team. Uh, Julius Randle's out for at least the rest of the regular season. Jalen Brunson's been sidelined, probably will not play. 
tomorrow night. The, the Knicks are locked in at five. They're going to play Cleveland, so they have nothing to gain. Uh, so I think they're going to sit anybody who's hurt. So we'll see. I mean, two wins uh, makes a big difference for them. Anything less than two wins uh, means they're going to have to scoreboard watch to some degree. So definitely need to get two wins. And you look, and, and it's interesting how this is coming down as well. Because look, they get a record performance last night. Herb Jones is not an offensive player, but he explodes last night. They have three players score at least 30 points. I think that's the first time that's ever happened in a single game in Pelicans history. So, but you can't depend on that night in, night out as well, right? So, but what do you think they can depend on moving forward in these last two games and then the beginning of the play-in tournament next week, Les? Well, uh, I'm not sure what they can depend on because they've been kind of inconsistent here. But one thing they're going to have to adjust to, this is what we've learned the last two nights, is that you know they got off to a 14-4 start the other night against Sacramento. Brandon Ingram had nine points. He scored 14 in the first quarter. And then Sacramento decided it was just going to sell out and, and run multiple players at Ingram to make him give up the ball and the Pelicans never really found someone to make them pay for that. And uh, last night, um, Memphis decided to do that from the start. Ingram didn't score. He only had one field goal in the first half. But as you mentioned, Herb Jones had 35 points, a career high. Trey Murphy had a big game. C.J. McCollum had a big game. So eventually they had to back off of Ingram play him straight up, and then he scored 10 of their last 13 points in regulation. So they have to be prepared for teams overcommitting against Ingram, and then somebody, and Trey Murphy the third is going to be the number one candidate. Somebody's going to have to make the defense pay for that so that they have to go back to playing Ingram straight up. You know, the interesting thing, and I wrote about this at PresentCitySports.com, is not only did they have three 30-point scorers in the same game for the first time, they had three 30-point scorers who all had at least five three-pointers made. And that's the second time in NBA history that a team has done that. The first time was about an hour earlier when the Knicks did it last night. So <laughs> those two teams will be playing each other tomorrow night. We're talking with Les East of ChristmasCitySports.com. He joins us here on RP3 and Company. When it's all said and done, and we're talking next week, brother, what are we going to be talking about? Are we going to talk about a Pels team that advanced in the playing tournament? Are we going to talk about a Pels team that's preparing for a first-round playoff contest? What do you think we're going to be talking about? Well, I think the most likely thing is that, that they do wind up playing in the playing tournament somewhere along the way in, in those four spots. And I think they have a very good chance of advancing their, um, you know, if they can get to that seven or eight spot, they, they kind of, since it's Masters Day, we can use the term mulligan. Uh, you can, you know, lose, you only have to win one out of two to advance out of that. Um, Seven eight game. If you're in the nine ten game, it's a do or die situation. But I think they're in good shape. Uh, if they are in the nine ten game, they'll get it at home like they did last year when they beat the Spurs. So I think they're going to be in a good position to advance out of the play in tournament 
if they do, then they'll play either Denver or Memphis, depending on whether they wind up seven or eight. But, you know, the, the five and six is still there for the taking if they can do it. And, again, we're probably going to find out later today what's going on with Zion Williamson. That There's no telling what the update is going to be. There's no telling if he's going to be available and, if so, when. So that's still uh, an uncertain element to all of this that's hanging out there, and we may know more. I think we'll hear something today. It may be vague or it may be more specific, but that that's another uh, factor to consider. Well, yesterday was supposed to be the day, you know, originally that we were supposed to hear something. So hopefully we'll hear something today. Uh, but Les, you're a veteran sports journalist, highly regarded, award-winning, well-respected. Uh, what does your gut tell you? Well, he, here's here's the the weird thing. It, it, I don't think he's going to play in the regular season. Whether or not he can come back in the postseason, that, that I think that is possible. Um, but but here's the weird thing: when the, when the Pelicans go on the road, they normally practice here and then travel. Their itinerary for Saturday is to travel to Minnesota and practice up there. And I just wonder if they're going to try and push him hard and practice up in Minnesota where there's going to be less of a spotlight on them and see how he does. And if he does well, then maybe run him out there Sunday against the Timberwolves and see how he looks and determine what his role in the the playoffs, play-in or playoffs might be. That's the only thing that I wonder about because that's an unusual situation for them to do it that way. But I think the most likely thing is that he sits through the weekend and there's a possibility that he could play come next week. Let's let's switch over to Saints discussion while we have a few minutes here. You know, we're in the middle of kind of a lull period, right, with free agency and we start gearing up for the draft. And fans of the Houdat Nation, they tend to get very excited when they see reports on social media about certain college prospects that come in for a visit. And I have to remind everyone, hey now, easy. You bring in 30 of these guys, and that's what you're allowed to do, and everyone does their due diligence. Not to mention, the Saints are kind of well-known for interviewing guys early in the process, say at the Combine, and not interviewing them ever again until they actually draft them because they like to kind of play things close to the vest. So what do you think the approach is going to be with the Saints heading into the draft? Well, I think it's going to be what they want it to be normally, which is to be in a position where they can pick the highest-rated player on their board and not have to reach based on uh, a position of need. Uh, ideally, you want to be able to pick someone that you've met with individually and maybe spent some extra time with because you have a better feel for who they are. I think one of the best examples of this in recent years was the the visit they had with Alvin Kamara at Tennessee's Pro Day in 2017. Uh, Sean Payton had kind of targeted him as somebody they were going to pick. They wound up getting him in the third round. And uh, I think Sean Payton left Knoxville knowing that he was going to get 
Alvin Kamara one way or another uh, because he was willing to pick him higher than other people had him ranked. You can't count on somebody being there in the first round uh, that you've targeted, but I think ideally it would be somebody they've zeroed in on and been able to meet with. But uh, at this point, I, I think they're comfortable taking whoever they feel is the best player at the time they're picking or moving up if that's the the right if there's somebody there that they think uh, significantly exceeds um, where they're falling in the draft but uh, I, I don't think that they're, they're going to know who it is going into the draft after they pick him they'll say that's the guy we wanted all along <laughs> but that doesn't mean it is uh, we'll, we'll see what happens but uh, I think they're comfortable with the fact that they put themselves in a position to not have to reach based on need and they'll take who's ever at the top of their board and no one and I mean no one knows who that is right now we'll wrap it up with this Les they do like to trade up Mickey loves doing that because they have a very small group of guys that they really target in the first two rounds. And if they get an opportunity to get their guy, they always will be aggressive and make the move, right? Now, a lot of times that guy gets taken before they can take him. You know, you know Patrick Mahomes being the perfect example of that. But, you know, they did it last year. They traded up. We know they maybe need a pass rusher. They could also maybe use another wide receiver. What's the likelihood, percentage-wise, in your opinion, of the Saints trading up, maybe using that second-round pick and packaging it with the first and trading up again this year? Oh, I think it's you know probably about 50-50. You know, if the right guy's there, they'll go, they'll go ahead and do it. And they're pretty well positioned with the, the draft picks they have this year and what they're likely to have uh, next year. So that they have assets that they can use to move up if the right guy – is there. You're right that they're not shy at all about doing that for the right person, but it, you know, it ha- they have to be sitting there. They're at 29. They have to get into the early 20s and have somebody that they thought was probably a top 15 to 18 pick sitting there, and then they'll start working the phones and jump up if they can if the person is still there and they can have a trade partner and they'll go into the first night of the draft with some some teams in mind that they can probably do a deal with uh in the early to mid 20s if the right opportunity presents itself and they'll be able to put together a package so if they want to do it i don't think they'll have much trouble making the deal the question is is the right guy going to be there at the right time and and that's really hard to tell but because they have so much experience doing that and they're so well prepared for doing it it, it's certainly going to be a possibility if the right person falls Les, you're always the right person to talk saints and pills with us brother thank you for your time happy easter to you and your family my friend thanks raymond this is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. 
RP3 doesn't play around when it comes to his personal life. I got one NFL team, I got one college team, I got one Major League Baseball team. And the big fella's also monogamous when it comes to his sports fandom. That's what I got my merch for, that's who I support, period. Call me old-fashioned. VN. Call me old-fashioned, that's fine. I'll be old-fashioned. RP3 is just committed to providing you with great sports talk here on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana. Sports Station. Oh, let's give you an update from the Masters. More and more groups are teeing off for the first round there at Augusta. Your leader is still the 29-year-old amateur from Northern Ireland who is an eye care professional, by the way, (laughs) by day. He leads it one under through five, and he is joined now at one under by Kevin Kisner, Russell Henley, and Scott Stallings. So we have a four-way tie atop the leaderboard at one under. And then Mike Weir, Taylor Gooch, Fred Couples, and a group of others, including Sergio Garcia and Keith Mitchell, are at even par and then we have a few other handful of golfers at plus one. And Kevin Na is improving. Uh, he's now only plus four on the day through seven. Sandy Lyle, two over. We were kind of talking off air a little bit about Masters Provisionals and stuff. He has a lifetime exemption as a 1988 champion, but he did announce this will be his last one. Um, he's not expected to make the cut. He hasn't made the cut since 2014, but um, he's two over through four. So a guy I'm kind of rooting for. You know, you like to see the 65-year-old somehow pull out and you know pull something off and make the cut here. D'Lo loves old people. I love it. Patrick Reed is about to tee off, as well as Shane Lowry, Bubba Watson, Keegan Bradley, Tiger Woods, Xander Shoffley, Adam Scott, Justin Thomas, John Rahm. Those are all coming up in the next hour, teeing off for the first round there at Augusta. Poll question of the day, what's the best golf major? Is it the Masters, U.S. Open, Open Championship, or PGA Championship? Keep those votes coming. Keep those comments coming as well, and we'll share them as we wrap up today's show. We'll talk more golf coming up next. The author of Little Poison. It's a great story. You're going to want to hear it. That's next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company, live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on the game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Welcome back to RP3 and Company right here on the game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana sports station. Man, whew. I don't know about you, but I love history. I also love golf, even though it is maddening to me, and it makes me say words that you're not allowed to say in a church setting anytime I'm on the course. But when those two worlds collide, as they often do, I'm always fascinated by it. And our next guest here on RP3 and Company has written a book just that's right up that alley, if you will. It's called Little Poison. Paul Runyon, Sam Snead, and the long shot upset at the 1938 PGA Championship. Joining us now is the author of Little Poison, 
John Deccan. He joins us now. John, good morning to you, brother. How are you? I'm doing well, Raymond. How are you today? I'm doing great. So uh, let me ask you this. Were you passionate about the game of golf before you did this book? Was it always there? And where did that passion stem from? Yeah, I've uh, I've played golf basically since I was 12 or 13 years old. And so most of my life, I just turned 40 this year. So um, it's been a large part of my life since I was a kid. I played uh, competitively as a junior. I played high school golf. I actually played college golf on the men's team at Creighton University where I went to college. And so... So it's been a big passion of mine since I was a kid, and um, and I grew up uh, in a pretty in a small town in a rural area in western Kansas with uh, not a lot of golf options actually as a kid. And so uh, one of the ways for me to feel connected to the outside golf world was to read about it. And so as a kid, um, when my parents would probably have rather I was reading books about U.S. history or or who knows what, I was reading about golf and, and other sports, of course, too, and just fell in love with the game um, in, in the large part through reading. And um, and in a small way, that's kind of what, what ultimately led me down this path of writing about Paul Runyon. It's a great David versus Goliath story, great underdog story. You know, for those who may not be that familiar with Paul Runyon, uh, the Arkansas farm boy who was only maybe five feet, six inches, if that, and only weighed a buck 30. Just tell us a little bit about him, about his passion for golf, and you know what kind of led him to the point where he did absolutely stun the world of golf back in 1938. Yeah, so uh, Paul Runyon grew up on an Arkansas dairy farm in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and um, it, it was a struggling dairy farm. It wasn't exactly a going enterprise. The family was struggling for, for survival, really, when he was a kid. But um, as luck would have it, the dairy farm was located across the street from the country club at Hot Springs. And um, bear in mind, this is in the early 1900s, so golf was still a game that was very new to our country. And um, But Hot Springs was one of the places where it was really taking off. It was a uh, a resort golf course there, and um, a lot of wealthy out-of-towners would come through Hot Springs on vacation and play golf. And so uh, Paul Runyon one day decided to wander across the road and and take up uh, caddying. And so like so many great players in golf history that you read about, uh, he got his start as a caddy. And um, very very early on, he, he realized that he had a, a passion for the game, and so he took it up as a player and and then as a young man became an apprentice to the head professional at Hot Springs Country Club. Um, but as you mentioned, Paul Runyon uh, was a was a little guy. He was at, at his prime. He stood five six, maybe weighed one hundred and thirty, like you said. And consequently, he was a rather short hitter. And it was that way when he was a young man, and it was really that way for the rest of his life. And so um, he learned early on that if he wanted to be competitive. As a golfer, he needed to find other advantages because distance was not going to be one of them. And so he developed what many consider the best short game in the history of golf. And um, that short game uh, led him to uh, turn professional. And um, it was kind of a slow start. Basically, from the early 20s to about 1930, he was fighting for survival, much like he had fought for survival on that family dairy farm. But in 1930, he, he got a big break. He was um, 
playing the North and South Open at Pinehurst in North Carolina. And out of nowhere, he won the tournament. And it really changed his life overnight. And um, basically, from that point on, he was a known commodity in the world of golf. Um, and he continued to progress year after year. And then um, in 1934, um, a lot happened, actually, in 1934. As you know, it's Masters Week, and um, Paul Runyon played in the first Masters that year. And in fact, by virtue of being the leading money winner, was paired with Bobby Jones, who designed the place. Oh, wow. And Runyon, yeah, and so Runyon finished that week, I believe, tied for third. But um, later in the year, he captured his first major championship, the 1934 PGA Championship. Um, and then that continued to catapult, catapult him on to bigger and better things. And by 1938, he was considered among the game's better players, but he was still known for being a short hitter. And so when he arrived at Shawnee Country Club in Pennsylvania for the 1938 PGA Championship, um, he might have been on a list of pre-tournament favorites, but he certainly wasn't the favorite. And that was a theme that continued throughout his career. He was just continually underestimated. And despite his playing record, which was quite good um, because of he, the fact that he was a short hitter, he was easily overlooked. But, um, but that week at Shawnee, he proved, proved the golf world wrong. That tournament in itself, you know, what I find interesting is that, you know, Runyon himself, he won 29 PGA tournament events in his career. So he wasn't a schlub by any stretch of the imagination, but Sneed obviously was the guy, right? He was one of the best golfers in the world. Some had him as a 10 to 1 favorite before the match. And not only did Runyon beat him, as you document in the book Little Poison, John. He absolutely destroyed him in the 36 holes. It was not even close. Yeah, it was the, the greatest woodshed beating um, maybe in golf history. I mean, yeah, he was a decided underdog. And, and your, your point is right on. Considering Runyon's playing record, I mean, he won almost 30 times. He shouldn't really have been underestimated. But yet, um, it goes back to the, the eye test. And when you line up a, a group of 30 professional golfers on a driving range, and watch him hit balls, Paul Runyon would be the least impressive because the ball didn't go much farther than your average Joe. And um, he knew where it was going, but he lacked a lot of distance. His swing was a little bit ugly. He had this big sway off the ball, and he'd kind of lunge at it through impact. And he just he didn't really pass the eye test, but he did pass the eye test around the greens. But as so often the case in golf, um, some of those strokes kind of go unnoticed. But... But, um, yeah, you're right. Sam Snead was golf's shiny new object. He was young. He was a big hitter. He was uh, had a beautiful golf swing, incredible balance, just everything. If you were going to clone the perfect player, Sam Snead was it. And so when these two men met in the finals of the PGA Championship that year, and it was match play in those days, um, anybody with a dollar to bet put their money behind Snead. It just seemed unfathomable that, unfathomable that Runyon could actually – keep pace, but it was quite the opposite. Um, uh, he controlled the match really from the get-go and never let up. He never gave Snead an opening, and he, he beat him 8-7, and seven, which is the largest margin of victory in, in a PGA championship in history. We're talking with author John Deccant. He's written a great book about history and the game of golf. Little Poison, Paul Runyon, Sam Snead, and the long shot upset at the 1938 PGA Championship. He joins us here on RP3 and Company. 
you know, obviously you had a passion for the game. You have a passion for the history of the game. What inspired you to write this book, Little Poison? That's a great question, and probably the question I get most often. Um, So uh, in 2018 or 19, somewhere in there, I was working on a, a magazine profile of a guy named Phil Rogers. And for golf fans out there, the name Phil Rogers might ring a bell or two. Phil Rogers was a, a really hotshot, up-and-coming professional who, who actually turned pro at the same time as Jack Nicholas, And his career got off to a really fast start. And then for, for numerous reasons, including some injuries, um, that career trajectory was kind of derailed. And um, he never really reached the promise that he once had as a player. However, he um, became a, a much sought-after instructor and later in his life a club builder, a club designer. But Phil Rogers, um, who also had a great short game, had learned to play golf from Paul Runyon. Uh, Runyon was the head pro at La Jolla Country Club in La Jolla, California, when Rogers showed up as a young man looking for, for some advice. And Runyon turned him into one of the best junior players in the country and later one of the best young professionals. And so... In the process of writing this article on Phil Rogers, um, Paul Runyon's name kept coming up. And I remember going back to that my, my youth in Kansas as a kid, reading about Paul Runyon here and there, but it was just a snippet, and it was mostly about this upset over Sam Snead at the PGA Championship. And so when I got done with the article on Phil Rogers, just to kind of humor myself, I started looking into the possibility of a book on Paul Runyon's life. And I really didn't know if there'd be enough there for a book. Um, but the more I dug, the more I found. And, and then the other telltale for me was um, basically this book didn't exist. Uh, Paul Runyon had written a couple books about basically golf instruction books about the short game. Um, but there had been no definitive biography of the man. And so I felt like, well, let me let me be the one to attempt to write the book that I would want to read if if I was the reader. And so um, early in, uh, I guess it was March of 2020, so we're talking the earliest days of the pandemic, I had a little extra time on my hands. Um, I was working from home for a few weeks while the world kind of figured out what was what was going to happen. And um, so I spent that time researching Paul Runyon. And, um, and what I found was there was absolutely enough story for a book. And it was a story that I felt, uh, as a golf fan, I felt needed to get told. And certainly the the underdog angle was appealing to me, but so was Runyon's longevity. I mean, this was a man who spent his entire life in golf, and he gave so much to the game. And I just felt like that story was had gone untold, and I wanted to be the guy to tell it. So, so I spent those early days of the pandemic uh, putting together a book proposal, and then um, spent the next couple years working on it. I, I, I think in all, it was basically a three-year project start to finish. And um, and then now this week, the book is finally out for publication, and um, I couldn't be more excited about it. Get you out of here with a few more questions, John. What's the one thing that you were the most surprised about or maybe impacted you the most when you were doing research for the book? That's a good question. Let me think about that. Um, I think so the – the upset over Sam Smead was kind of the carrot that got, that was what got me into the story. Um, I think probably like a lot of folks that will read the book, 
um, it was surprising to me how good Paul Runyon was for that entire decade of the um, of the 1930s, and and yet he had flown so under the radar despite a very good record. Although I I, I would also say the most surprising thing to me was um, so a couple years after the the 38 PGA when Runyon shocked the world, um, the world got shocked when um, our country entered into World War II, and like a lot of able-bodied men of a certain age, Runyon. Um, joined the military for a couple years. And during that time, his playing opportunities were quite limited, um, although he gave lessons um, as much as he could. But, but when he got out of the service after the war, he decided to retire and leave golf. And I, I couldn't believe it. This was a guy that was basically at the top of his game, and he, and he walked away. And I thought, well, wait a minute. How am I going to – my story can't end here because it doesn't end here. He – he goes on to have a great career as an instructor, but but anyway, it was a short-lived absence. He he basically became a jewelry salesman for for a couple years and um, thought he'd make more money. And for a couple years, he probably did, um, but he just he couldn't resist the urge to get back into golf. And so so late that decade, late in the 1940s, he he, be, he re-entered the world of golf, got a club professional job in California. And, um, and continued to play some high-level competitive golf um, for really another decade at least. And then um, as he got older, of course, became, became more prominently known as an instructor. Um, and that's another area where he's uh, probably a little underappreciated because he really changed the way that uh, short game um, was taught. And, and not only taught, but how much emphasis was put on it because Runyon was the perfect example of a guy that could uh, make a living by being a really great chipper and pitcher and putter, and so many players just chose to ignore that part of the game. So I think he definitely, um, his legacy is, is about his contributions to the short game. John, appreciate your time. Brother, thank you so much. Can't wait to read this front to back. Enjoy the Masters as well, and hopefully we'll be able to talk to you soon. Best of luck with the book. Yeah, I appreciate that, Raymond. It's a it's an exciting uh, week in the golf world, and um, we'll all feel differently next Monday. We'll all have something to talk about, and that'll be whoever is going to be flipping on the green jacket Sunday afternoon. Thanks a lot. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. RP3 is known across Acadiana as a master of the English language. You look at all the guys that they got. Clinton Anukoraru, Oof. And I don't know how to pronounce this young man's name. TJ Falola. More like a master of broken English, that is. They also added an inside linebacker, Casey Wasawi. These names are killing me, man. I even practiced <laughs> last night. Me fail English? That's impossible. Now back to that silky smooth delivery of RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Oh, I want to take a moment to thank all of our guests. James Yasko from the Limited Time Time Podcast. Jeff Willis, LSUE baseball coach. They're 36-0, by the way. Les East of CrescentCitySports.com, talking Saints, talking Pels. And uh, John II, the author of Little Poison. Thank you. Thank them 
for coming on today. Poll question of the day on this Thursday edition, jam-packed Thursday edition of RP3 and Company as we're off tomorrow for Good Friday. We asked you, what is the best major in golf? 93% say the Masters, 3% say the Open Championship, 3% say PGA Championship, 1% say the U.S. Open. Thanks to all who voted on the poll question of the day. Thanks to all who left their comments as well. Mr. Green says, I mean, they're all solid, but I got to say the Open, you never know who's going to break out. Thank you for all of that. And thank you for Jamie for coming in about the Open. Do you have a uh, do you have a prediction for the Masters? Well, the Masters has begun. We do expect Storms to play uh, wreck havoc, which could change and kind of neutralize a lot of golfers' abilities on the course. Look, I, I said before, the big storyline for me is can Rory, Rory win it? And you got to love his chances to be able to do so. Um, so I think he has a great chance. But what what, what is you? I mean, you you yeah. mentioned earlier that it's Scotty, right? Well, I think Scotty's the favorite. Um, if I if I had to go somewhere above, you know, outside of the couple of the top, you know, two or three favorite guys on the odds list, I'm looking at Xander Shoffley now. Ooh. Xander's going to tee off in about 20 minutes, and I was kind of telling you in the break. I think if somebody in these early groupings can fire a 65, 66, 67. While the weather isn't quite there yet, that might be a huge advantage because once the weather gets in and the wind starts whipping, it's it's going to be unpredictable. Xander's a guy who hasn't won a major yet, but he's been close several times before. In the Masters, he has a tied for second and a tied for third. Uh, before missing the cut last year, that was kind of an anomaly. He's played very well at Augusta. So if he gets one of those early numbers down now, can he deal with the pressure of playing with Tiger in the first round and the second round? If he overcomes that, which I think he might, I like Xander Shoffley this weekend. I'll give you a guy besides Rory that I like. I'll give you two guys. Will Zalatoris. Can he make a four-foot putt's my only question. Correct. Right. Uh, this is a guy, he, he has all the tools, right? The putting, the short putts, can he make that? And I'll give you another one, Colin Morikawa. Uh, he's been very good, finished in the top ten in each of his last three Masters so he knows the course, he knows how to play it. So those would be two other guys besides Rory and Scotty that I would like this weekend there in Augusta. That's going to do it for today's show. That's going to do it for the week. We're off tomorrow for Good Friday. So please, everyone out there, have a happy and safe Easter. Spend some quality time with your family and enjoy the holiday weekend. For the producer extraordinaire, Dawson Iserlo, I'm Raymond Parsa III, better known as RP3. We'll do it all again on Monday six to nine right here on the game but until then be safe out there be kind to one another kevin foot and footnotes is up next right here on the game